So I, I just want to spend some time exploring some scripture with you. Uh, and I want to talk to you specifically about helping others with our money. This church is incredibly generous. It doesn't just support Compassion's ministry very generously, but it comp- supports many other missionaries and other missional organizations really, really generously. This church gives 25% of its budget away to other organizations. It's an incredibly generous uh, ministry. Uh, but what does the Bible say about helping others, and particularly about helping others with our money? Jesus talked about money uh, a lot, but I want to go back to the Old Testament. I'm going to go to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if you're not sure where Deuteronomy sits in the Bible, it's the fifth book of the Bible. It's, last, it's the last book of what's known as the Torah or the, or the law. Uh, and this is where the Israelites had been wandering in the Promised Land. They'd, they'd been uh, captive in Egypt. They'd been freed. They'd gone through the Red Sea, and then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And in that time, God had given them the, the, the Ten Commandments. He'd given them the, the law. But, uh, but Deuteronomy means second law. So these were the real practical, final instructions for how they were to live when they entered into the Promised Land. So I'm going to read uh, from Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 to 11. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for cancelling debt has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised, and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns the land your Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land, Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So these are instructions as to how the Israelites were to live. And these were specifically uh, around money. And when I was thinking about this, the first question that popped into my mind was, what is money? Now, we can give quite a simple answer to that. We know what cash looks like, we know what our bank balance is, we know what money is at a, at a simple level. But actually, the more you think about it, the more complex money is. Money represents something, it represents things that are valuable, it represents things that are desirable, it represents our, our work, it represents our, our labor, our efforts. It also represents our talent and skills. Some skills are in higher demand than others, and so people can uh, demand a higher price for their skills. Historically, money was linked to the value of resources, things that people would trade with one another. And over time, one of those resources 
rose above all the others to become the standard for which money uh, was held against. And that was gold. You may have heard of the gold standard. That's what that refers to. And gold is a strange commodity when you think about it, isn't it? You can't actually do much with gold. You can't eat it. It doesn't keep you warm. You can't make anything particularly practical with it. Yet for so long, gold has been a precious metal. It's been held in such high esteem. Why is that? Well, gold does have some attributes that go some way to explain this. Gold is very hard to find. You have to go and look for it. You have to work to get it. Gold is very difficult to copy or counterfeit. Gold doesn't weather or deteriorate over time. It's very hard wear. In fact, it's almost impossible to destroy gold. And gold is very scarce. There isn't a lot of it. It's a scarce resource. And because of that, it's deemed to be highly valuable. The modern rise of cryptocurrencies actually try and copy the same attributes as gold. You you might have heard of Bitcoin and people saying they're mining for Bitcoin. They're trying to emulate the same values as gold to create a value in a, in a cryptocurrency. But it's that last attribute that I think sits at the heart of much of our relationship to money. It's that scarcity. Scarcity is what gives things value. Does anybody remember Concord? When I was looking at this, I was staggered to, to, to find out that Concord stopped flying 20 years ago. I couldn't believe how long that was. When I was growing up, Concorde was the thing. It was the coolest plane that you could ever fly. And if you, if you don't know Concorde, it was this incredible supersonic jet that could take you from London to New York in under three hours. It flew twice the speed of sound. But it was, it was really expensive to run. The tickets were extortionately expensive. And for most people, they either couldn't afford to fly Concorde or they simply couldn't justify the additional cost versus the price of a regular airfare. And so the planes were half empty. British Airways couldn't make money out of it. And so they announced that they were going to stop flying Concorde, they were going to down their fleet, and they were going to decommission them. And when they announced that, something really interesting happened. Sales for Concorde tickets went through the roof. And from the day they made that announcement to the day that the plane finally stopped flying, almost every seat and every single flight was sold out. And what had changed? The price hadn't changed, the flight hadn't changed, the service hadn't changed. The only thing that happened was a once abundant resource had suddenly become a scarce resource. Some of you keen-eyed might have noticed my bottle of Prime here. Not many people in the, the, the service this morning knew what this was. I'm guessing a few more of you this evening probably do. Uh, I didn't know what it was until about two weeks ago, I'm going to be honest. Um, my kids know what this is, and my wife managed to find a bottle of this. This is a drink that's been launched by a couple of YouTube stars, very, very popular stars with big followings. And they launched this energy drink, and they heavily market it, heavily advertise it, but then deliberately limit the supply of it. They make it really, really exclusive. They make it really, really hard to find. And so kids are clambering over themselves, getting parents to drive all over the country to get a bottle of this. And when they get it, you can resell it for many, many times its original value. Now, I've left this here all day, and nobody's taken it, probably because it's got some weak old orange squash in it. 
My kids drank the, the prime. It's that scarcity that sits at the heart of our relationship to money and resources. So much of our relationship to money is dominated by fear. That's ultimately what it is. Our culture at the moment, isn't it, is surrounded by fear. All the talk in the media about cost of living, about inflation, it's all fear-based. The future's uncertain. We don't know how much things are going to cost. We don't know uh, what the future's going to look like. We don't know how much money we're going to have. Our real-term incomes are going down. The cost of living is getting higher. We're surrounded by this fear narrative. And we may think that we sit above that and that doesn't apply to us, but it applies to all of us, really. If we woke up tomorrow and found that our bank accounts had been emptied and our assets, our homes taken away from us, we'd, we'd feel a bit more fearful about the future. Or if we found that we'd won the lottery or the OMA's million-pound uh, house prize draw that we see advertised all the time, we'd feel more secure, wouldn't we? If you, if you suddenly got a windfall, you'd feel more secure, you'd feel more hopeful about the future. So much of our relationship with money is, is rooted in fear. Compassion uh, work, uh, uh, at the moment, there's a big focus with compassion on innovation. We want to try and grow our ministry. We want to try and reach more supporters. And we're thinking about new ways in which we can do that. Uh, and we're working uh, alongside a consultancy based in New York called Praxis. Uh, and I was invited on a call with Praxis, and they were sharing something about uh, the way they operate, and they were talking us through uh, something about their model, and they were, they were talking about three different models, three different mindsets that organizations can have in their approach uh, to a marketplace. But as they were talking uh, about this, it, it suddenly occurred to me that this is the same as our attitude towards money. This is the same as our attitude towards our relationships with other people. And so practice says the first uh, mindset that we can have is what they call an exploitative mindset. Sometimes this is called a zero-sum game mentality. Now, this is the default human condition. This is the way that we are, are born. Have you ever seen two children fighting over that one toy? It's, that, it's rooted in that scarcity mindset. It's treating life, treating relationships, treating resources like a game of football. In order for me to win, you have to lose. So it's all about me. Winner takes all, survival of the fittest. And God, in speaking to the Israelites, was saying to them, this is the way that the other nations around you are living, and this isn't the way I want you to live. I want you to live by a better standard. God said in Leviticus, you must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you. God was saying there's a better standard, there's a higher standard by which he wanted the Israelites to live. The next standard Praxis talked about is called an ethical standard or an ethical mindset. You might want to call this an enlightened mindset or a positive sum game mentality. This is where we recognize the value in other people Actually, when we work together, we can go further. When we work together, we can get that win-win. If you have something I want and I have something you want and we trade, then we both win. And this is something that's, as the name suggests, rooted in uh, being good, doing good, doing the right thing, being fair and being just. And again, God spoke to the Israelites about this. 
He said, do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights and an honest ether and an honest hin. God was saying, this is the minimum standard by which you are to live. You are to live by an ethical, fair, and just standard. But actually, there is a point that even this ethical standard begins to break down. Because when we approach somebody, when we interact with somebody else that needs something from us, but they don't have anything to offer us back, there's no win-win there. If we have to give and we get nothing back, what's the point of that for us? Ultimately, the ethical standard is still rooted in fear. It's still rooted in the fact that I'm not going to let go of something unless I know I'm going to get something back that's of equal or better worth, something that makes it worthwhile for me. And yet it's okay to have a fair deal with somebody else, but not everybody has something else, something to offer you that you want. And so in these verses in Deuteronomy that we read, we hear God saying, actually, there's a higher standard still that I want you to live by. Praxis call this a redemptive standard. This is a standard that puts the other person first. This is a standard that says, if I see a need in you, I want to meet that need, even if it costs me. Even if I lose, I want, I'm willing to lose to make you win. This is a standard that rests and trusts in the fact that God owns it all, that all of the resources that we have are ultimately God's resources, they're not our own. And in Deuteronomy 8, God says to the Israelites, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Our ability to produce wealth, to make money, actually comes from God in the first place. If we are to live by this redemptive ethical standard, so we've got to let go of, of something that we're holding on to. We've got to be willing to bless somebody else, even if we get nothing back in return. This redemptive sacrificial standard is not rooted in fear. It's rooted in something else. It's rooted in love. Love says... What can I do for you, not what, what can you do for me? This is what God is pointing the Israelites to. He's pointing them to a standard that rests and is rooted in love. Rooted in a sacrificial, redemptive love. And ultimately, God is pointing the people, uh, his people, the Israelites, to Jesus. He's pointing them to the cross. The greatest act of redemptive, sacrificial love is the cross of Jesus. 1 John 3.16 says, this, for, uh, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. John is saying, this is the greatest example. You cannot get better than this. There is no higher example than this. The very definition of love is what Jesus did on the cross for you. the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate investment in you and in me. We have nothing to offer God, but he sacrificed everything for us. Why should we help others? 
What should we give to those that can't give back to us? Because when we do, we're sharing something of that same love that God showed for us through his son on the cross. We're sharing something of that redemptive, sacrificial love. John goes on to say, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. Like Donald said in communion, there is something about responding in action. Love is not a theory. Love is not uh, just an emotion. It's an active thing. John is saying that this isn't, this isn't an optional part of being a follower of Jesus. If you've got the love of Jesus in you, that love thro- flows through you and flows out in response to sharing that love with other people. And who should we share that love with? Who should we help? Who, who should we offer help to? The verses in Deuteronomy say this is for only for other Israelites. This is for only other people of your own nation, other people that live around you. But when Jesus came, he changed all of that. In one of his final uh, acts, he commissioned the disciples in what's known as the Great Commission. In Acts 1.8, he says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem is their home city. Judea is their home nation. But Samaria is their opposing nation. The Jews and the Samaritans were enemies. And Jesus was saying, take the, the good news, take the love of God even to your enemies. The love of God is for all. Take it to the ends of the earth. I've talked a lot about our uh, relationship to money and our relationship to giving to others. But what, what happens to somebody else when you give sacrificially to them? What happens to them? It gives them something. It gives them hope. When you show God's love to somebody else, it plants a seed of hope in them. Ultimately, what Jesus did on the cross gives us the eternal hope of restoration with God, of eternal life with him. And we share something of that when we share God's love sacrificially with others. We give them the gift of hope. And there's something about sowing a seed in the next generation. Much of the relationship with this church is not, uh, with compassion and this church is not because of me, it's because of uh, a gentleman called David Whitehouse. Uh, He's no longer with us. He was a long-standing member of this church. Uh, And it was David who first introduced me to compassion. Uh, at every church event, every coffee morning, David would have his compassion stand up and his, his table out and his profiles out there and his leaflets, and he would be banging the drum for compassion. And when I quit my job in business and I was looking, uh, I didn't know what God was calling me to do, I was looking for a job and I saw an advert for a charity and it didn't say who the charity was. But it said, would you like to come and work for an organization that releases children from poverty in Jesus' name? And because David had done the brand awareness with me, I knew immediately that it was compassion. If it wasn't for David planting the seed in me, I wouldn't be standing here today. I wouldn't be working for compassion. There's something about planting a seed of hope in somebody else. You know, compassion work 
in 25 countries across three continents, lots of different cultures and contexts. Um, but there is a common theme among communities living in poverty. It's hopelessness. Children don't dare to dream of a better tomorrow because they can see no way out of their current circumstances. That was the case for Ronnie. For those of you who were here last year, we had a couple of graduates. So these are formerly sponsored children who've been through the sponsorship program who are now adults. Uh, and uh, we had a couple with us last year who were sharing their story. And I've had the privilege of working with a few more. And I was at an event with Ronnie. Uh, Ronnie was born in Uganda, and he was sponsored when he was nine years old. And uh, he now lives in the UK. He recently qualified as a teacher, and he lives here with his family, his wife, and his two children, who I had the opportunity to meet as well. Uh, and I spent a day with Ronnie at an event, and he was telling me his story. And he was telling me about one of the most significant moments in his life when he came to the UK for the first time when he was a, an older teenager. He came as a part of a youth program and they took Ronnie and his colleagues to Soul Survivor, the Christian youth camp. And it was there that Ronnie first saw his, uh, his first compassion stand, a bit like the stand you've, you probably saw as you came in today, just a table laid out with some ch children's profiles on. And Ronnie was intrigued by this because like many sponsored children, he... he uh, he didn't really know, he didn't really understand the mechanics of how sponsorship worked at the other end. And so we went and he stood by this table and he watched as, he, as people came and picked up profiles and looked at the children and filled in their details to sign up. And Ronnie was just amazed by this. And he, he watched as two young girls came up to the stand. Turns out they were university students. And Ronnie overheard them talking he overheard them saying, look, we really want to sponsor a child, but we haven't got that much money. We're students. And Ronnie listened as they debated and discussed between them all the things that they could stop doing, all the things that they could cut back on, just so that they could go and sponsor a child. And he watched as they filled in that profile, and they sponsored that, that child each there that day. And Ronnie said, this experience just blew him away. Just, just watching as people picked up a child and chose a child, he said that was so impactful for him because he realized that all those years ago, somebody had done the same thing for him. Somebody had picked his profile up off a table and said, Ronnie, you matter. Ronnie, you matter to me. And more importantly, you matter to God. And he's got a bright future for you. And Ronnie witnessed this sacrificial giving, people giving out of their poverty, not out of their wealth. And Ronnie said this changed his life. This was the most significant, one of the most significant moments in his life when he realized the sacrifices people were making for people like him so that they could have a better life. I love this quote from Ronnie. Compassion gave me hope and the ability to dream. What an incredible gift to give a child. And as if that gift isn't enough, God says that when we do that, when we give sacrificially, when we lend to the poor, when we're open-handed, he says he will bless us. Three times in the verses that I read, he says, I will bless you, I will richly bless you. Again and again and again, he says, I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless you. As Donald often reminds us, when uh, the Bible repeats itself, it's, it's emphasizing something, it's highlighting the significance of it, why is God repeatedly saying, I will bless you, I will bless you, I will bless you? 
Because letting go of what's in our hand, giving sacrificially, is hard. It's not easy. That scarcity mindset, that fear is real. We all experience it, no matter how rich or poor we think we may or may not be. We all experience that fear, that scarcity mindset sits within us. And that's why God is saying he will bless you because it requires us to have faith. We've got to put ourselves out there. We've got to let go of what's in our hand. I was thinking about the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and in John's gospel we read that the person that gave the five loaves and two fish was just a boy, it was a child. And I was thinking from that child's perspective what that day must have been like. He must, you know, he turned up there, he got a nice picnic planned, I'm sure he got his little spot picked out ready for his, his lunch. And then one of these disciples, these authoritative men came up to him and said, hey son, can I have that food, what's in the basket there? I'm sure he could have thought, I don't want to give away my food. I'm just a kid. Why can't one of these adults step in ahead of me? Is it my fault that I came prepared and nobody else did? It's not my problem. Why should I have to suffer because nobody else thought to bring some food with them? And what's such a little amount of food going to do amongst so many he had all these reasons to hold on to what he had in his hand. But he didn't. He released it. He let it go. And what's really important to think about is he didn't know what Jesus was about to do next. He had no idea what Jesus was about to do next. As far as he was concerned, he was sacrificially giving away his lunch, giving away what he'd brought with him to have. But he was the catalyst for that miracle. Jesus is the one that performs the miracle. Sometimes when we look at a problem like poverty, when we look at the issues we're facing in the world, they seem too big to us. And we feel we can't do anything to, to, to make a dent in them. We feel like we need, we need to be the ones that perform the miracle. But that's God's job. Our job is to play the role of the boy sometimes and to let go of what we've got in our hand, to step out in faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Again, this is an essential part of our walk with Jesus. We receive his love, but he calls us to step out in faith and when we share that love with others. The biggest step of faith I've, I've ever taken in my life is when I gave up my job in business and I came to work for Compassion. Uh, my salary decreased by two-thirds when I did that. I was the main breadwinner for my family. Uh, we had a, a, a traditional kind of model. My wife looked after the kids and worked part-time, and I was the, the breadwinner, and it was a big change for us. We didn't know what the future was going to hold. We didn't know whether we'd have enough money. We didn't know whether we'd be able to have holidays or, or some of the things that we enjoyed as a family anymore. But we felt called. We felt that God was calling me into this ministry. And I can just witness to you today that nearly four years after we made that decision, just the, the blessings that we have received, not just financially, not just in my job uh, with compassion, but in our family life, in our marriage, in my wife's career. Her career has taken off. I was chatting to Reuben before the service. My wife's career has taken off as a result 
of the decision that we made, of the sacrifice she made. She didn't want to go full-time at work. She didn't want to stop being the primary carer for the children. But she made a sacrifice for me and for our family. And because of that, God has blessed us. Why should we give to others? Why should we help those that can't return it back to us? Because we're showing God's love when we do. We're planting that seed of hope. But it takes faith to do it. But God says when we do, he will bless us. He will bless us. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I grew up in this place. I saw these things happen in my community. At the very young age, I am exposed to drug selling, drug abuse, and drug running. Lorega is a ring in the air. If you say Lorega, then people will always associate you with drug addiction, with prostitution. Child protection is really one of the most important things that we, uh, partners of Compassion, can do to help the child. I asked them what are the dreams, and most of the mother cried. So I changed the question and I said, okay, if you don't have a dream for yourself, what is your dream for your children? And they cry more. And uh, after talking to more than 200 parents, I can't sleep. I can't sleep because imagining and thinking about, I, I will be ministering to this place where people don't have really a dreams. When I was young, I don't have any hope. But then when I came to know the Lord, it makes something new. He molded me into a beautiful one because of the hope that he gave me. It's really my dream that they can really be released from poverty in all aspects and can be an influencer in their community. I am now a teacher, so now I can teach more students. I can teach more children, mothers, because God teach me. And I want to use my life as a living testimony to those people who don't know Christ yet. Lorega now is totally different. Before, every taxi driver will not come inside Lorega. Shooting every day. But Lorega now is uh, totally open with the gospel. I am here standing in front of you because I am one of those children. My sponsor was from the US. Through her, I am now a graduate student of the Bible School. I always dream with our children because their lives have been giving hope in the community. When other children will see them, it inspires others. Compassion International, the staff, the caseworker, plays a major role to instill into the child that there is hope in spite of poverty. And Larigia now is a, is a better place than before. God is my redeemer. God is my cornerstone. And he has done beautiful things in my life.
I love how that story just shows the transformation in the child, but also the family and the community. Angelica, who, who was in that video, her father used to work for one of the major drug lords in Larega, but through her faith, he also came to faith. And like many others have come to faith and she's now an example to others in that community. Uh, Sutton Baptist sponsor 95 children in 85 different communities around the world. That's the impact that you're having. That's an incredible impact. 85 different churches are being blessed by these people in this ministry. I met with Ronnie again uh, just before Christmas at the Compassion Christmas Party. Um, he's a great dancer. And he was, uh, he was telling me he'd just come back from Uganda and he'd been, to a, he'd been invited to a ceremony there and because they were closing down the Compassion Project that he grew up in. Because that community had been transformed so much, they no longer needed the support from Compassion and so Compassion are, are going to take that resource elsewhere to where it's now more needed. You can have the opportunity to do that today, if you would like. Uh, you can do it if you if like technology and like doing things on your phone. You can do it on your phone. There's a QR code there, or you can follow the link, compassionuk.org slash hope slash SCBC for St. Coldfield Baptist Church. And there are children on there that you can sponsor. Or if you're a pen and paper person, you can, we've got paper profiles and you can have, we've got some of these at the table at the back. This is in Shimwei. Uh, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, just to put her community into context, she lives in Rwanda, and the average earning uh, family uh, wage in that area is about £22 a month, and probably Ashimwe's family is somewhere be- below that. So although £28 a month may feel like a lot to us, it's more than doubling Ashimwe's household income as a family. That's the impact that you can have. Sponsoring a child isn't just a nice thing to do, it's transformational. It really is. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, we thank you for the, for the love that you first shared with us, Lord. We, we are able to love because you first loved us, Lord. And we don't give to buy our salvation or to earn it, Lord. You gave it to us for free, Lord. Help us to have that same sacrificial mindset, that same heart of love that you showed to us. Lord, I thank you for this ministry at Sutton Baptist. I thank you for all that they have sown into the ministry of compassion over so long, both past and present. Thank you for these now 95 children that are being impacted by this ministry. Lord, we pray for them and we pray for the children that are not yet sponsored, Lord. We just pray that you will bless them. You know each of them by name, Lord. And I just lift them up to you today. Lord, thank you for the gift of faith that you give to us. Strengthen us as we step out, as you call us and as you lead us, Lord, so that we can share that love and bring hope to others. Amen.